This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And what a story we have to tell today. Picture this, 1916, Newfoundland and Labrador, and uh, a dominion of its own right and uh, with its own regimental force, the Newfoundland Regiment, and uh, war is raging in Europe. And young Newfoundlanders are coming forward and enlisting to fight in World War I. And one of them was a 16-year-old boy from St. John's. I say a boy because really that's what it is. If you, uh, if you go to a high school today and uh, you sit among a class of uh, 16-year-olds, you, you understand, you know, while they have the world ahead of them and they're smart and they're bright, uh, they're still children. And if you're a parent, you know that feeling as well. So imagine now a 16-year-old boy uh, enlisting and lying about his age to do so, by the way. So obviously he had the conviction uh, to, that this was the right thing to do, enlisting with the Newfoundland Regiment to go overseas and fight in World War I. And imagine that when he went to that recruitment office and signed his name, that he would have no idea, or maybe he would, but there's ch- chances are good he had no idea that within a year he would be dead. And that basically is the story of a young man by the name of Private John Lambert. One of many Newfoundlanders, of course, who went over there and died. Um, there are some in my own family who did that. Uh, a funeral service is going to take place in Belgium at the end of this month to formally lay to rest the mortal remains of 17-year-old Newfoundland Regiment soldier Private John Lambert, who died in the Battle of Langemarck in August of 1917. Well, his remains were uncovered in 2016, and through an extensive process involving the evidence uncovered and matching that with DNA and historic and genealogical analysis, those remains were positively identified. His family members will be on hand when his remains are finally interred on June 30th at the New Irish Farm Cemetery near Ypres in Belgium. Well, my guest today is the forensic anthropologist to help, who helped to identify Private John Lambert. Dr. Sarah Lockyer is the Canadian Armed Forces Identification Program Coordinator. Hello. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Great. So, um, I got to ask you right off the top, Lockyer, are you Newfoundlander? Uh, myself, no, but my grandfather, <laughs> Owen Lockyer, was born in Newfoundland, yes. See, I knew that. <laughs> well, welcome so to there the... There is a connection there, but uh, other than that, and I have to admit, a little shamefully, I myself have never been in Newfoundland. Well, you got to come. You got to come down. Mm-hmm. You're a part of our history now, and you're a part of the history anyway, being a Lockyer, of course. Um, and it's funny that um, when I made the call to arrange to have you on the show today, the woman I was dealing with was a Fyander, and I had to ask, <laughs> are you a Newfoundlander? She said, well, 
four generations back. <laughs> and she says, you know, the only people that ever ask me about my name are Newfoundlanders because it's a popular Newfoundland name, of course, Fiander. So um, <laughs> what's, tell us a little bit about your own uh, background as a, as a forensic um, anthropologist. Um, I've been working in this position as casualty identification coordinator for the Canadian Armed Forces uh, for almost six years now. Um, and for me, um, admittedly, when I when I was younger uh, in high school, I, I had seen um, a forensic anthropologist on a Canadian true crime show uh, who explained how she did what she did. And I thought to myself, that's incredibly cool. I want to do that. And uh, by uh, some hard work, uh, a lot of luck, I managed to be able to, to get a job in the field of forensic anthropology. And uh, so that's where we are today. So what's the role of the Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identify <laughs> Identification Program? Well, the program has existed officially since about 2007 because there's over 27,000 Canadian service members from the First World War, Second World War, and the conflict in Korea who have no known graves, so we don't know where they are. Um, and due to a number of things like uh, construction or farming activity or archaeological excavations, more and more human remains from those conflicts are being discovered. And um, in the early 2000s uh, was when, um, for us uh, at the Canadian Armed Forces, that, that first case kind of came to light in the early 2000s, and then more and more sets of remains were being discovered. So then it was a, a decision to be like, okay, well, we need to have a sort of an established program with a good process to hopefully be able to identify as many of these as possible. So what kind of situations do you get called out to? You mentioned, you know, farming activity or, or archaeological um, excavations that are already happening or, you know, what, what, how are you, how are you, I say, hey, we need you over here. Right. Well, admittedly, the, the casualty identification program starts when something has been discovered. So when a, a set of remains that is thought to be Canadian has been discovered and already when that process or that decision is made, the sort of the archaeological and the discovery have, have happened, you know, maybe weeks ago or sometimes even months ago. Um, typically what happens is that, especially in France and in Belgium, where the vast majority of our cases are uh, discovered, um, my colleagues at Commonwealth Workers Commission, uh, they have a facility in northern France, um, they will receive that first initial call once a discovery has been made. A lot of the times it happens after uh, or during, I should say, a, a munitions clearing process because in France and in Belgium, the, the fields are still absolutely littered with unexploded ordnance. So anytime there's any type of construction, it has to be a munitions clearing team that goes through first. And that's when many of the discoveries are done. So Commonwealth War Race Commission tends to be the first point of contact after the police to make sure that it's not, uh, you know, a modern homicide or something like that. Um, and they will be the one who recover the remains. And based on the artifacts, uh, then the appropriate nation will be notified uh, so that an investigation can start into the identification of that person. Are the remains usually still in situ when you get involved or have they been removed and they're, you know, in, in a box or something? They've been they've been recovered and brought into a storage facility um, because it, it is a little unreasonable to expect, for example, like a construction company to stop all work so that I can fly from Ottawa 
to France at a moment's notice to go double check, you know, that these remains are Canadians, for example. Um, so uh, that's why it's it's the uh, the recovery team at Commonwealth Lovers Commission who takes care of that. So, there, but there must be somebody there to say, okay, this is where we found them, and this was the sort of uh, um, the aspect in which they were in, and and th- all those things. So that the more information you have, the easier it is for you to help figure out that process. Absolutely, exactly. So the the location of exactly where the remains were discovered, I mean, that's vital because that tells us, you know, when we're looking at the historical context of that area, sort of which units were in the area, who died, who went missing, who else may have gone through there. So having a sort of a GPS location of exactly where the remains were discovered is very important as well as artifacts, you know, anything that has uh, a national uh, identifier, anything that's a unit identifier, or sometimes even a personal identifier, like an identification disc or a ring with initials on it. I mean, it's, it's very important, like, is that ring, was it found on the finger of that individual or was it found around the hips, meaning it was maybe in the pocket, right? So all of these things we have to take into consideration because if he was wearing it, for example, it's highly likely that it actually did belong to him. But if those initials on that ring, that might have been a loved one's or uh, somebody else's initials, maybe not his. But if the item was found in his pocket, did it actually belong to him? Yes or no. So there's there's all these questions that come with what you find. You do have to question everything. But yes, the more archaeological context information, where were the artifacts uh, in um in relation to the body exactly, that gives us vital, vital information to start figuring out who that could potentially be. Oh, the ring in the pocket. As soon as you said that, it, you know, you just, all these possibilities open up, you know, uh, what did, did he put it there for his own safekeeping? Was it somebody gave it to him, said, here, can you hang on this to this for me? You know, oh my goodness, you know, all the exactly. possibilities. So many questions, so many questions. And so human. Yes, Exactly. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about the circumstances surrounding the discovery of Private John Lambert when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is forensic anthropologist and a member of the Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identification Program. She happens to be the coordinator, Dr. Sarah Lockyer, who is a Newfoundlander once removed, right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. My guest today is forensic anthropologist uh, Dr. Sarah Lockyer. She's the Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identification Program Coordinator. And we're talking about the uh, discovery and identification of Private John Lambert, a member of the Newfoundland Regiment who died in Belgium back in 1917. So, um, Dr. Lockyer, tell us a little bit about the circumstances surrounding the discovery of Private John Lambert. Well, Lambert, and as well as a number of other sets of human remains, uh, were discovered as the result of an archaeological excavation. Um, In Belgium, uh, there are certain firms in certain areas who do archaeology uh, related to the First World War. And that's how these remains were discovered, was through that process. Is that right? So somebody uh, kind of on an amateur level? Oh, no, no, no. These are professional archaeology Uh. firms with professional archaeologists, yes. I see. And so uh, I guess they recognized that this had uh, significance related to the First World War. So how does that process work then? What happens after that? 
well, in this case, what had happened, because it was being done by professional archaeologists, and, and archaeology in, in every nation is heavily regulated uh, by that nation, so there are certain rules and regulations that, that need to be adhered to. And for this instance, uh, so the recovery was done by the archaeologists. Uh, and they were taking some, some uh, archaeological information, uh, measurements, and, and things like that, which were then all transferred to Commonwealth War Graves Commission when it was determined that these remains were uh, predominantly British, of British individuals, then with the Newfoundlander who was also within those sets of remains. Right, because he wasn't alone. How many other uh, remains were there? Right next to him, with him, there were three other British soldiers that were found. But overall, in this entire uh, sort of dig site, I don't know the exact number offhand, but I believe it's more than 20 sets of remains that were discovered within that dig site. But I'm not 100% sure if that's accurate. Right. So this would have been uh, the site of a battle, obviously. Yes. Yeah. So what led to their burial in that place? I suppose it was, that's the spot and that's where you're going to go. Um, well, admittedly, also, I'm not a historian, so I might not be the best person to answer that question for you. But based on the information that my colleagues have told me, is that um, the war diaries for uh, the 88th Brigade mentions that there was a field ambulance relay post. Um, and it appears that those soldiers, those four soldiers that included Lambert, were buried near that relay post. Um, and then for unknown reasons, the remains were simply not recovered after the war. So what kind of work specifically do you do to help to identify the remains? Obviously, you look at the bones, you try to determine age, that kind of thing. How does that work? Exactly. So in this case, we had um, we had four sets of remains because we knew one of them was the Newfoundlander, but we didn't know which one of the four was. Uh, we, we had found, or, or the archaeologists had found, a, a shoulder title that clearly demonstrated that one of the four was the Newfoundlander, but there was no information to help us associate which body that shoulder title went with. So I had to actually analyze four bodies instead of just one in this case. Um, and take as much information as I could possibly take from those four individuals, um, including things like estimating age and height and taking DNA samples uh, back to Canada so that we could start uh, trying to figure out who that person was. And and the first thing to do um, always when I'm analyzing human remains is to put them in anatomical order and ask myself, like, are these bones human? Because sometimes it will happen that you have an animal bone or a rock or even a piece of wood that's included in the assemblage um, that others have mistakenly taken for human remains. So that's, that's the first step. Lay everything out in anatomical order and then start working through the biological profile, which is determining age, sex, height, any trauma on the bone, any illness on the bone, anything that could potentially help us for, on a biological level uh, identify this person. And hopefully there's some kind of information in the personnel files where we can make those links between that information. Were these four um, obvious individuals or was it a sort of a conglomeration of bone? I'm, what I'm trying to say is how do you know that uh, bone A belongs to individual A and not individual C? Right. So in this case, um, there was actually quite a bit of, of what we call commingling, so mixing of the remains. So um, it's... It, it's not uncommon to find sort of um, temporary burial locations that have more than one individual in it. And there are 
rarely sort of like neatly placed side by side and completely separated. There tends to be some overlap of limbs or, or the torsos and, and things like that. And that is in fact what happened with this case. So then it's, it's going into um, different anthropological methods. Uh, in this case, I use something that's called osteometric sorting. So it's measuring almost every single bone and then using statistics to try to figure out what goes where. Um, which bone, uh, this, this method tells you which bone does not go with that bone. So then it kind of can help you figure out, okay, well, by process of elimination, it then goes with this. Um, and, and DNA can also help with that as well. Uh, and, but at the same time, because the remains are not repatriated to Canada and they're buried in the closest appropriate cemetery to where they fell, I don't bring the entire body back with me to Canada. I can only bring some small samples. So there's a lot of different methods that were used to try to figure this out. Um, but with Lambert, he was definitely the youngest of the four. So when you're looking at bones and their, their level of growth, that can also help you. Like if the bones are showing you that they're very young, well, they probably all go together if the other three don't show that the bones or that that individual was that young. So with Lambert, that actually helped the fact that he was so young. You must get to know these individuals, I guess, in a very intimate kind of way. You get to find out, you know, what kind of health they were in or if they broke their leg at some point or what kind of a, a diet they might have had. Do you feel you start to get those kind of personal bits of information from them sometimes? You do, but it, it very much to be able to do the work because it, it can be very emotional and psychologically heavy because I am handling death. I am handling a person's body, right? So when I'm doing my work, that kind of takes a backseat because I have things I need to do to be able to get to the ultimate goal of uh, identifying that individual. Usually those emotions and, and that sort of that personal connection that tends to come out for me when I'm at the burial and then all bets are lost and I'm crying all the time and it's a very emotional, <laughs> an emotional day in a good sense. But up to that point, I try as much as possible not to let it affect me too much because I do have a job to do. And to an extent, you were somewhat lucky because some of these materials, like the shoulder patches that you were describing in that, did survive. Is that a rare occurrence? Um, not necessarily. When things are made out of metal, they tend to survive. So in this case, the shoulder title was, in fact, made out of metal. Um, however, you do have instances where the metal is so badly damaged and corroded that you can't really say what it is. Now, usually we'll get uh, something like this, like a, a unit identifier, or we'll have a button with Canada on it and things like that. But sometimes it happens. The human remains are only found with Commonwealth equipment, so general military equipment. Those cases are a lot more difficult because we have to figure out, based on history alone, nationality, and then you know the list of candidates becomes that much larger because you don't have a sort of a single regiment or unit to focus on. Um, but in many of the cases, yes, there's there's something either from the unit or sometimes even like with a name on it that helps us sort of go in the right direction. 
I know DNA was involved in this particular case, and I want to ask you a little bit about that and how that worked when we come back after the break. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Lockyer, Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identification Program Coordinator. We'll be back right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And my guest today is Dr. Sarah Lockyer, Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identification Program Coordinator. She's a forensic anthropologist by profession, and uh, she played a significant role here in the um, identification or the positive identification of the remains of Newfoundland Regimental Soldier Private John Lambert. And um, uh, Dr. Sarah Lockyer, I understand that DNA played a role here. And when we say DNA, I think a lot of people think, oh, yeah, get the DNA. That's better. But it, it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's, uh, it's a bit tricky. How was, how was it collected? Um, and, and you're absolutely right. It, it is very complicated and very tricky. Um, so for this particular case, what I ended up doing was taking a total of eight samples from those four bodies uh, back to Canada. So I bring back a bone back to Canada and um, then it goes to a contracted DNA lab. And, um, and just to prove how complicated it can be, out of those eight samples, only three of those samples came back with a full DNA profile. Um, some of the other ones had only a partial DNA profile that could be extracted, and one of those eight samples, no DNA could be extracted from the bone at all. So, um, yes, very complicated, but at the same time, based on the fact that I had brought um, a number of different samples to reassociate some things within the different uh, assemblages and also confirm some of my theories when I was going through the four bodies, uh, we were able to use all of that DNA and, and to start then looking for somebody in the family who has the type of DNA that we're looking for, because not all family members can provide the type of DNA we're looking for. So I assume you're talking mitochondrial. In this case, yes, it was. It was, in fact, mitochondrial DNA that helped us identify Lambert. So that would be uh, DNA that's passed basically unchanged from uh, mother to, to child, but men don't pass it on. That's correct. Exactly. So right. men can give that type of DNA sample, but it's only, it's only the women who pass it to, to her children. So you have to look for very specific people in the family tree based on the type of DNA that was extracted from the bone. Right. So on the matrilineal line. Exactly. Yeah. So were you even sure that the DNA you, I mean, these, these bones that you uh, chose to bring back to Canada, uh, were you even sure that the DNA extracted from it would be viable? As you already pointed out, some of it wasn't. Exactly. Some of it wasn't. But the lab assured us that for at least seven out of the eight samples, uh, there was enough that was suitable for comparison. Uh, so I, I'm not a DNA expert. So if the lab, the DNA lab tells me that they can work with the samples that they had, uh, then we proceeded. If, if there was another uh, problem where none of them were able to be suitable for comparison, then I would have probably brought all the samples back to uh, France where the remains were stored and um, maybe chosen new samples to try again. So what kind of samples do you go for when you know that DNA is going to be extracted from them or tr attempted to be extracted from them? 
Ideally, if I can bring teeth back to Canada, that's what I'm going to try to do because teeth can survive very well. Tooth enamel uh, is, is very strong when, when there are no cavities or anything like that. And um, so if, I, if there are teeth that are present, um, I'm going to try to do that. In this case, however, I couldn't bring the teeth back because when the gums are decomposed, the teeth can quite easily come out of the tooth sockets in the jaw. So I had a lot of teeth, but I didn't really know who they belonged to, right? So in this case, because we also had four individuals, I want to make sure that I have four different DNA profiles. I had to make sure that I chose a sample or I chose a bone that um, is dense, is compact, and to make sure that I had four of the same. So four from the right side to then essentially guarantee I would have four different samples. So what sort of conditions then contribute to the deterioration of DNA in, in, in a sample? I, I guess you have to be able to not only make sure that you have the bone that will identify four separate individuals, but that the bone itself is not somehow, I guess, uh, deteriorated and is the right candidate. Exactly. So I, I try as much as possible to, um, like I said, choose bones that are kind of dense and compact. So these bones were, are less likely to be um, damaged. Uh, if there's a lot of damage to the bone, that could contaminate the DNA and, and, and make it so that it uh, deteriorates that much faster. And a lot of the times in these temporary burials, the soldiers were, wear, were buried wearing their uniform, including their boots. And the boots are really good at protecting the feet uh, and the bones of the feet. So a lot of the times I'll take a bone from the feet because it has been protected by the boot, which the boot had decomposed and deteriorated first before what we call the taphonomic factors. So the soil, the water, uh, the air starts decomposing uh, the the tissue and then the bones of, of the feet. So if I can go for the bones of the feet, I'll try and do that because they tend to be less damaged um, if there's a lot of damage to the rest of the skeleton. Is contamination an issue? I'm thinking in terms of, you know, you had an archaeological team over there in Belgium who were taking these bones out of the ground. Uh, um, is, is there a chance that, you know, it might have been contaminated by someone accidentally spitting in that area or a hair or <laughs> touching things or whatever the case may be? Um, or do you go like into the interior of the bone? Right. So it is unlikely to have that type of contamination because the lab, what they will do is they'll they'll take a piece of the bone completely out so they'll they'll cut a piece out um and they'll go into it so the you know the likelihood of you know somebody spitting into it um it's kind of not that high <laughs> i had to ask <laughs> i'm oh, curious it makes total sense because things like you know tv shows like csi and ncis and things like that people tend to think like you had mentioned earlier oh well you just do dna well sure but there are some limits and some complications when it comes to DNA. Uh, so people tend to assume quite a lot of things about DNA when it may not actually be the reality. So those questions are good. Right on. So you got a hit. Yeah, we did. We did, yes. 
And of course, I guess a lot of the, because I understand that the other three soldiers that were with, um, uh, buried with um, uh, Private Lambert were not identified. And I guess there's a, a whole re- set of reasons for that. But Newfoundlanders, if you know anything about them, and you should, <laughs> um, uh, you know, we like to know who we are. We like to do that kind of thing. A lot of them are involved with ancestry DNA, and uh, some of these databases are are public and uh, that kind of thing. So how did you how did you nail down his identity through, I guess, finding relatives? Well, what we actually ended up doing is I, I reached out to the rooms in St. John's uh, because we figured Newfoundland, like you said, you guys are very interested in where you're coming from. Um, there's a lot of areas of Newfoundland where everybody knows everybody, right? So, um, and with us, there was only 16 Newfoundlanders missing from that area in Belgium. So we were like, okay, that's not a very big list, very small. Um, And let's see if the rooms has some um, archival material or some research capabilities uh, that can potentially help us try to locate some of the families. And then we can then reach out to those families and find that right person to give the DNA sample that we were looking for. Ah, so it was less random and a little more targeted. Yes, exactly. It's very much targeted in in these cases, especially when the list is small. And um, in this case, uh, we we didn't end up finding a family member for all 16 of the soldiers because we were quite lucky and we got uh, some positive results from Lambert's sample. And Lambert ended up being one of the first few that we were focused on um, at the start of our research because he was so young and one of those sets of remains was also so young. So in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, how can we optimize this? How can we be efficient? One of these guys is really young. If it happens that he happens to be the Newfoundlander, let's focus on the younger candidates in the list of 16 and and hope we got lucky. And in this case, we did. Fabulous. So that helped tremendously. So I suppose those were some of the barriers in trying to identify these uh, these three British soldiers, as I suppose, you know, the regiments are bigger and the age ranges are wider and all of those kinds of things. Well, not only that, is that for, um, for my colleagues um, in Britain, they have um, quite a bit of circumstances that we in Canada don't have to deal with. And the big one is that the vast majority of the personnel files during, from the First World War were destroyed during the Second World War uh, because of the blitz and, and, and fighting that happened in London and the bombings that happened in London. So they don't have those personnel files that include the vital information like the dates of birth and the height of their missing. So they're already starting on, on a much you know, uh, worse footpad than I am, for example, because I have the personnel files here in Canada. I can get what we call that anti-mortem data, the, the data before death. While in Britain, they don't have access to much of that because it, it got destroyed during the Second World War. Uh, how sad. Mm-hmm, exactly. The, yeah, the circumstance, like, you know, uh, genealogists here in Newfoundland and Labrador would understand exactly what you're talking about, because while um, one family might have success going back a couple of centuries, another family gets a block as of 1949 when the church burned down. Exactly. That's exactly it. My guest today on On Target is Dr. Sarah Lockyer, Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identification Program Coordinator. We'll be back right after this. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. 
The Drive on your VOCM. My guest today is forensic anthropologist Dr. Sarah Lockyer, coordinator of the Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identification Program. And uh, you work to help identify this young soldier, Private John Lambert. Um, How many more soldiers have you helped to positively identify? Um, I believe the number is now 12, I think, if I remember correctly. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Is it satisfying to know how your work affects families and, and, well, I guess the entire country, really? It it is, um, because as a forensic anthropologist, that's that's the goal, is to return uh, the names and the faces to the individuals who were unknown for so long, right? So that's the goal of of the field of forensic anthropology, and the fact that I, I, I get to do that and return more or less those the, their faces and to the nameless and but also return them to their families is something that's incredibly special so in this case you were able to return this young lad to his family now he will you know be buried in in belgium but uh, you know have you been in contact with any of the family members Oh, I, I have been, yes. Um, when we were able to reach out to them in late 2020 to sort of officially notify them that uh, Private Lambert had been found, I had a few conversations with family members, and that was quite special as well. What did it mean for them? Um, just it, for, for many families and, and for Private Lambert's families as well, it, it, it goes back to like uh, just they knew, of course, who Private Lambert was. Uh, not all families know who their missing relative is but in this case they did they knew of him and they had photographs of him and and they were just incredibly grateful and and also pleasantly surprised that something like this uh could happen you know 100 years after the first world war you mentioned you know giving a name and a face and a history to some of these in many cases young boys who who made that supreme sacrifice thousands of miles from home and lying in the ground nearly forgotten for decades is that what helps to to motivate your work to know that you know you're you're giving these i mean they didn't die in vain we'll say it, it does, and and it like like I said, it, it goes back to, to that goal of, of returning their identity to them. And when when we get one right, when when, when we're able to confirm the identification, is like okay, you know, we can keep doing this because I, I also I have forty other skeletons I'm trying to identify right now. So whenever we are able to uh, notify a family that we've identified their relatives, it, it gives me that much more motivation to to make sure we can do this again for another family. You mentioned you have 40 other skeletons because I was going to ask you, you know, what, what's next? So do you uh, do you have a little inventory? You say, OK, this one's crossed off. Now I'm going to work on on this one. Right. So, yes, there is an inventory. And, and when I do get to cross one off, that's a really good day. Um, but at the same time, um, many of the cases that we're working on is from one battle in France that happened uh, around the same time as this battle, August 1917. So it's not necessarily of uh, addressing one as they come in, uh, because many of our potential candidates, they're candidates for multiple sets of remains. So we're kind of looking at it from a bit more of a holistic kind of global point of view and, and trying to come up with an efficient strategy uh, to, to get as many positive outcomes as we can. So I'm, I'm handling pretty much all those 40 cases at once and, and trying to see which one uh, should be prioritized based on a number of different factors. I see. And any other potential Newfoundlanders among them? Uh, no, not yet. Unfortunately, no. 
So what happens now? This um, um, memorial service or interment is going to take place in uh, Belgium near Ypres um, June 30th, if memory serves. Uh, Are you going to make it over there? Do you get involved in that kind of thing? Uh, Yes, I will be there. Um, I usually am able to attend the burials uh, because I do have a number of different responsibilities for that. Things like actually putting the remains in the caskets. Uh, that falls on me to be able to do that. And um, I have a couple of other responsibilities as well when it comes time to the burials. But uh, I always look forward to being able to attend these ceremonies because it's it's sort of it's the the. I guess uh, the final step in in the whole process, um, I get to say goodbye at the same time, um, and it's something that's quite special. And you mentioned that opportunity for release, that opportunity to finally say, okay, this is a human I'm dealing with, yes, you know, as opposed to here are the tasks that I have to perform. Um, you know, emotionally, does it allow you that opportunity just to go, okay, now, now I'm on to other things? It does, yes. It kind of allows me to, to let let this one go and, and admittedly for Lambert, let this child go um, and know that, you know, he'll be taken care of in perpetuity and his grave will be taken care of in perpetuity and that his family now knows where he is. And they can lay those flowers and they can make those trips abroad and and have those goals to say, we're going to remember you. Exactly. It's very emotional, I have to say. I, I, I'm getting a little of a clamped here <laughs> just thinking about it because, I, as you all, all probably already know, you know, the, the, whole, the, the sacrifices made in World War I in particular in Newfoundland and Labrador, really, it still resonates to a great extent today, and uh, it means a lot to the people here, I have to say. So well done. It does. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so when is your trip to Newfoundland? <laughs> i put you on the spot now. <laughs> I'm not quite sure yet. I mean, it is, I have to say, it is shameful because I'm from New Brunswick. So it's not like Newfoundland is that far away. Uh, but I just, I had never had the opportunity to, to make my way there. So I'm going to have to find a reason very quickly uh, to make my way there because I've only heard fabulous, fabulous things about Newfoundland and its people. Are the, you part of the Lockyers of Bonavista Peninsula area or? You know, I have no idea. I'm not quite sure. I'm so sorry. <gasps> well, I know, I know it's shameful. Someone um, will give you an education for sure. Pro- Highly likely, but I do know that my, recently, a couple of years ago, my father and his brother, um, they went over to Newfoundland and uh, visited the areas where my grandfather was from. Um, so that's something that uh, I can definitely add to my list uh, when I go there and visit. Well, come on down. We'll embrace you. You've done a great uh, job for for people here in this province. And, uh, you know, we always like, like to see people coming back. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as soon as I can make it, I will happily do so. Excellent. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, you know, it's, the, you know, we're people. <laughs> yes, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Dr. Sarah Lockyer, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate your time and we appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, and thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thanks. And uh, Dr. Sarah Lockyer is a forensic anthropologist, coordinator of the Canadian Armed Forces Casualty Identification Program. We've been talking about Private John Lambert, who she helped to positively identify after his remains were found back in 2016 in Belgium. Um, We'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. Working on another show for you. Not quite nailed down yet, but I've got some uh, interesting Um, pokers in the fire, so to speak. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, everyone.